Welcome to the Africa Tech Summit podcast, sharing insights from across the African tech scene. Today's episode was recorded live at the Africa Money and DeFi Summit in Ghana. Stay tuned for great insights and also a discount code to join us at the Africa Tech Summit in Nairobi. Thank you for joining us this morning and thank you to all the panelists for joining us here from very different places. I'll let the panelists introduce themselves. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Adi Soji Sholanka. I'm with uh, APSA. I head APSA's fintech investment banking origination team. I'm based in our London office. Hey, everybody. Hi. My name is Jazeel. I work for Axion Venture Lab. I lead our sub-Saharan Africa fintech investing business into early stage uh, fintech startups. Excited to be here. Hi, everyone. My name is Michael Moutier. I work with the investments team at Launch Africa Ventures. We're a small early-stage Pan-African VC fund investing in early-stage technology ventures across the continent. So far, we have 133 deals across 22 African markets covering 14 sectors. Happy to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Ivona Kafo. The background is in investments, most recently as an investment officer at an asset financing company. But I'm here in my capacity as a co-founder of ANA Collective, which is a global nonprofit community for global investors focused in Africa. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And I think um, one of the most interesting things we have on the panel today is somebody in banking. I just want to talk about the role of banks and how they play um, in supporting fintechs. I know We've maybe seen a little bit of that and maybe not seen a lot about that um, in the past few years. But then I think just starting with Adesoji, um, since you're here today in your capacity from ABSA, what roles do banks play as capital providers or acquirers of fintechs on the continent? I think that's a very good question. And um, thanks to Andra and the team for uh, having ABSA here. Okay. So in terms of the potential rules for banks, there's a couple of things. Maybe let me start with uh, from an APSA perspective. So APSA has recently set up a fintech investment banking team, and I had the origination for, uh, for that team, essentially. And the goal really is to build a leading African fintech investment banking franchise focused on M&A, mergers and acquisitions, whether that's sell-side or buy-side, but also capital-raising efforts, whether that's equity or debt, across capital markets, but also private investors. So in terms of what we've seen banks typically do on the continent, there's a couple of things. So there's a number of accelerators on the continent. So we also see banks in certain instances participating in early stage uh, funding rounds for certain companies they consider strategic. We've also seen some banks allocate capital as LPs into certain funds. Okay, These are also trends uh, going on on the continent. But at the same time, banks in Africa are probably your cheapest providers of capital, okay, particularly in terms of local currency funding. So because of that dynamic, you also find out that another role that banks could potentially play is that in an environment where interest rates are picking up around the world, increasingly we are finding tech companies on the continent increasingly rely on local banks in different markets looking for local currency funding. And this needs vary from at least from an absolute perspective, asset financing needs. We are seeing demand for instant settlement financing, and this continues to uh, range across the spectrum, uh, across different markets. And perhaps maybe the final thing to mention here is um, as a bank, because the bank is quite interconnected across markets with different players doing multiple things, there's a significant role we can play sitting in the middle, connecting providers of capital with those who need capital. 
So we do a lot of work with financial sponsors, whether that's private equity firms, venture capital, um, and helping portfolio companies raise capital from the right sources, depending on their stage of needs. And the final thing is around capital markets. So at the moment, we're actually busy with at least a couple of uh, TMT and fintech uh, capital markets transactions. One of them has been announced, uh, which is the Airtel Uganda IPO, which is currently ongoing. So um, so there's a range of things that banks can potentially do. And, you know, we're quite busy uh, in terms of TMT and fintech practice at Absa at the moment. Thanks, Adesaji, for sharing that. And I mean, um, we are looking to see a little bit more of that. I think this year and the coming years. And there's something I want to move to. I know everybody, we're talking about a lot of fintech insights. So I want to just share some insights that we have in terms of what like funding looks like right now in fintech and also on the continent. As we all know, the continent is seeing kind of like a downturn in funding. But then fintech hasn't quite seen that between July of 2021 and 2023 now. Um, fintechs have still attracted up to $2.7 billion from VC funds. And so as we speak about kind of like the funding downturn, I wanted to turn to JZL as a financer in this space and just ask you what are the opportunities for resilience in the downturn for fintechs in Africa? So yes, I think it's true that there's a funding downturn, but obviously it fits into a larger conversation around hyperinflation, currency devaluation, global markets, uh, multiples compressing. But I do think that if you take a step back away from all of this and you look at what fintech is supposed to do, I think you find out that post-pandemic, more people have entered poverty, more less people are getting banked, despite how many fintechs we have banking, the unbanked. And so there's clearly a gap, right, that has to be filled. And I think that's where I see opportunities for resilience, is for companies that are not only solving pain points for businesses or end consumers, but are solving those pain points in a way that what I think is different is helping those business and consumers improve either revenue collection, revenue optimization, or even um, income generation broadly. Because one thing I keep telling folks when I talk about African fintech is that it has to exist within the capacity of how much people can spend, right? And the middle class in Africa has been flat for the last 15 years or so. Um, comparatively, America's middle class is like 100 times more in, in purchasing power. So despite how many fintechs we have, the people are going to be able to solve or pay you to make your business scalable. If they don't have money, they cannot pay you. So for me, what I see resilience actually existing is people that are solving pain points that are really valuable, really critical, but are directly connected to income generation for the businesses or the consumers that they are, they are serving. Because I think our market is so early that the nice-to-haves will have to wait, especially in a downturn like this, for the must-to-haves. And that's what I'm looking to back as a, fund, as a founder, is companies that are looking to solve those must-to-have problems in Africa broadly. Great. And I think just this helps me just lead up into my next question, I think, and it would like Yvonne and Michael to both answer. While you're looking at investments, I think uh, Michael is from Launch Africa, and I know they have a lot of activity on the continent. So when you're looking at investments during this time, even though there's a downturn and you're still willing to deploy capital, what are the things that you're looking for from companies as well? I know some of them could be what JZL has mentioned, but what are you specifically looking for? And I think I'll start with Michael. Thank you, Timame. Just to build on Giselle's point, so aside, of course, as an early stage investor, aside looking at a solid management team with a highly scalable product, we are seeing that 
founders at this point in time are really going back to the basics and focusing strongly on that. So with regards to how the businesses are being raised, what pain points are they solving? And I think just looking at the numbers, if I may, the fintech funding in Africa has dropped 29%, I think. Uh, but if you look at globally, Latin America, the U.S., um, and Asia, I think the number is significantly higher than that at about 60%. So as much as, you know, during this funding winter, we are seeing a slowdown in uh, deal sizes and valuation, it's comforting to see that activity in the sector, especially in Africa, is still ongoing. And so there's demand for supply for founders and businesses providing really fundamental solutions to the must-haves that people are struggling with. And we are going to see a steady you know, flow in that area. Uh, and also looking at the funding that was raised in the, I believe, 2021 funding heat wave, where capital allocators were able to also raise more. So with that reserve, we're still going to see a steady movement in the fintech sector in Africa. Um, so things are not as, as bleak as, as I think they've been painted to be. Great, Yvonne. Maybe to answer this in a very different way, I think um, some of the things that investors that I've spoken to, and even myself, I think even just assessing deals that I look at um, when it comes to fintechs and where they're playing, is also ensuring that the businesses that they're building fit whatever market that they're looking to operate in. Because it's one thing to build a business, you know, maybe like a, a business on an English-speaking app and take it to Francophone Africa, it's not going to make sense, or not adapt it to what that particular country kind of like needs. So maybe even some examples in terms of themes, looking at, let's say, um, traditional banking countries, so like places where the banks are pretty much the main leaders in the financial services space, like Morocco and stuff, um, Morocco or maybe even South Africa, how are your fintech solutions working with the banks to actually, let's say, get into the consumer's pockets or work closely with businesses? Or let's say mobile money specialists like Ghana, Kenya, Uganda, um, how are you working to maybe complement those business models to keep innovating or even keep supporting um, banking, the unbanked, as we like to say, or even improving financial opportunity for both businesses, but then also consumers as well. Um, so I think that's another key thing that is really important as you are building fintechs, and as I know pretty much majority of people in this room are, just ensuring that whatever solution you're building is not just taking one solution from one country that worked and copying and pasting it to another market, but ensuring that you're actually looking at what that particular market needs and tweaking either your business or even building a new business to actually fit the problems that that market is having. Great, thanks. And I think both of you have spoken about something I want to lead on to. And I know there are a lot of fintechs in the room, so allow me to get just slightly controversial right now. Um, I know that we're seeing a huge change in valuations right now, very different. And something I like to say um, jokingly, but not jokingly today, is that the ecosystem is healing. And that's just coming from, from an investor's standpoint. But then I think I want to turn this to Adesaji, just because you've been in the space for a while. Um, how have valuation expectations changed? Um, and what factors have influenced this? And then what should founders be aware of now as they build fintech businesses? Sure. The, the simple answer is the valuation expectations have changed very meaningfully to the downside. Okay. And I think from the, if you look at many of, first of all, fundraising has <laughs> contracted quite significantly, which simply just means that it's taking companies much longer to raise their next funding round. 
It also simply means that those companies that are, that are short on capital in terms of their runway, if you're unable to raise and you're unable to significantly reduce your bond rates to give you enough lifeline, you face the likelihood that you might need to close shop. Okay, and I think over the last couple of weeks to months, we've had, had quite a number of uh, announcements along those lines. Uh, I think when we also look at even certain companies that have come to the public markets to get listed in the last couple of months, because what's happening, because the thing with capital markets is you need to take advantage of the capital markets when sentiments are in your favor. Okay, so you need to ride that wave, get to the market quickly when positive sentiments, you know, are there. We've had a couple of IPOs, and generally in the last uh, two, three months, many of the tech and fintech companies that have come to market, their share prices are down 20 to 30% since their IPO pricing, right? So which raises another, you know, uh, set of questions. So to come to your question in terms of what's been going on with valuations, generally a lot of down rounds are happening, you know, inside rounds, which simply just means that we're having um, existing investors having to put in additional capital to support their portfolio companies to prevent them from, to give them additional uh, runway and prevent them from uh, having to close shop uh, anytime soon. So these are some of the general trends. Uh, the final thing to just say is that in terms of conversations we've been having with private market investors, whether those are PE firms or even venture capital, I think many of these conversations have been around at what point do you need to start to seriously consider exiting your portfolio company? Because you find out that a number of the tech companies in Africa are quite highly valued. You know, highly valued now meaning $100 million and above. So the question then becomes, who is your realistic acquirer if your target acquirer is an African strategic? Okay, which African strategic can realistically write a check of $100 million and above to acquire these companies? Yeah, so it's an important question for, I think, some of the VCs on this panel to answer. So I'm going to throw three back to them because they are the ones who do those valuations, right? Um, you know, I think, I think that begs, you know, two questions. You know, the first one is who is going to acquire these companies? And the second question then becomes at what stage should you be investing at if when you're writing those investment memorandums, your target acquirers are African strategics? Okay. So I think there's a lot to think about there. You know, but the role for banks to play within that mix is to try to help you figure out the answer to those questions, right? You know, hence some of the conversations we've been having over recent. Great. Yeah. So I feel like Adesaji is saying he has a hundred million, <laughs> <laughs> but just maybe. And I am gonna let Jay Z or piggyback on this. I know anybody that follows Jay Z on Twitter, you know, he has strong opinions about like the fintech space, the valuations. So I'm just gonna let him piggyback on this. And I think when Adesaji was referencing. Uh, an investor up here about that it was you <laughs> yes absolutely because um i agree i think i like numbers so quick number thing in africa there's only 600 companies that make 500 million dollars in revenue or more a year 600 companies so to your question about how many of these companies can pay 100 million more this is just top line right they still have to pay their staff they still have to pay taxes different countries that they are in because they're multinational so bottom line is very small number so when we come back to the question around valuations and it's one of the things that as a shop we've always been very focused on price discipline i think because you're an investment bank i like the way you think it's like you have to think about valuation in terms of price 
Who is willing to pay for this? If someone tells you that you have $0 in revenue, but it will give you $10 million pre-seed valuation, they're saying to you that tomorrow morning, someone will come to you and say, hey, your company with no revenue, no customers, I'm going to give you $10 million for it. If that person believes you, tell them I have a beachfront property in Kumasi to sell them <laughs> because that's silly. And I think when you look at fintech, we, I think 2020 was zero interest rates, phenomenon. Everybody was super hype and super excited. But we have to come back to the fundamentals of what a business is. It is technology, yes, but at the end of the day, it's still a business. You're giving people services. You're giving you money back. It's what people have done for generations. So if what you're giving people and what they're giving you back are not matched and you want to convince me that I should give you X valuation, you have to be able to prove that. And I think what founders are going to have to realize really quickly is that because you're in Africa, because to Yvonne's point, the geographies are very different and Nigerian startup going into Kenya is a very different conversation. There's so many things that actually compresses your potential for what your startup is. So if you look at Airbnb and you say, oh, look, I'm building Airbnb for Africa. Airbnb is 13 billion. I should be 3 billion. That's not how it works because Airbnb is doing America, is doing US, is doing Europe, is doing UK. You're doing Nigeria and they have to go and try and do maybe Kenya, maybe South Africa because again, GDP in Africa, the highest is $7,000 per capita. Nigeria is 2,500. Egypt is 3,500. Purchasing power is not there. So as founders, as an investor, my pushback to our founders always is that let us think about valuation expectations within the confines of what is reality because if I come in at a company at $5 million valuation, as an investor, my expectation is that I'm going to 100x my company, my money, right? So I'm expecting that you become a $500 million company for me to return my fund. That's the math investors have to do. So if an investor comes to you and says they'll give you $20 million, they're saying to you that now I expect you to be a $2 billion company in 10 years. And that's a very tall order for anybody in Africa, at least today, maybe in 10 years. Great. Thanks for sharing. Join us at Africa Tech Summit Nairobi in February, where African Tech connects. Please visit africatechsummit.com forward slash Nairobi for more details and use discount code DEFI, that's D-E-F-I, and receive a discount off delegate passes. Something you referenced is Nigerian fintechs. And I want to move the conversation. I know we're in Ghana, but I want to move the conversation just a little bit um, to Nigeria because I feel like everybody sitting here has made investments in Nigeria. And because we're talking about insights again on the continent, I want to mention a few things and then ask my question. So in 2022, the top deal in the payment space was Flutterway with their 250 million Series D. And then um, Interswitch had 110 million raise. And then MFS Africa, which is based out of South Africa, had 100 million raise. But Nigeria still topped all the charts in terms of VC funding. And they had 217 established fintechs. And then South Africa followed with 140 and Kenya with 102 and then Egypt. JCL doesn't believe me, but yeah, that, that's true. So I want to ask this question to Yvonne because she's from Lagos. And then I want to push it on <laughs> to Michael because I think we all know Launch Africa and they've made a bunch of investments on the continent and most of them are fintech investments. So what's so exciting about Nigerian fintech? But I'm going to turn that question and say what's so exciting about Nigerian fintech now pre-Series A? So anybody that hasn't raised Series A. 
I'm going to try not to be biased just because I'm Nigerian, but um, I think when we look at companies pre-Series A, you usually invest in primarily the founder and the team, and then you look at like the innovation and what they're solving. Of course, looking at both of them kind of at the same time. So I'm going to look at more personal characteristics versus kind of, and I'm going to leave the more metric number-driven answer to Michael or anyone else on the panel. But I think for any of you that maybe have met Nigerians or for the Nigerians in the room, I think one of the things that Nigerians tend to possess is what we now call delusion, but radical arrogance, <laughs> honestly. Um, and I think that in a way is actually something that serves them well. So like literally the, the radical arrogance to believe that they can do anything and they can solve any problem and whatever they do is actually going to come to life, whether it does or not. And let, I think even just speaking for investors, whenever, like, the way you pitch and the way you sell your business or the way you sell yourself is very important, especially when you're kind of, like, talking to someone to give you money. Like, I need to be confident in you as a person. And sometimes confidence just starts with communication. So I think that's one of the, I think, personal qualities that Nigerian founders, and maybe let me just drill it down to Nigerian fintech founders sometimes tend to have about whatever they're building. So that's one and I think that translates not even just operating in Nigeria, but then even when they carry their solutions to other markets. Um, the other thing that I will mention before I hand it over to Michael is the ability to innovate over a period of time. I think let's take, for example, Money Point, which was most recently, which is, I think, the recent rebrand, but was previously known as Team Act, which has been operating for almost a decade at this point. I think shifting from how they were operating before to the current, I would say, multi-million dollar business that we know right now was a shift that happened when they raised initially raised their $5 million round and then now have raised subsequent um, millions of dollars. So I think that key to that ability to innovate or even to kind of like shift gears when necessary is something that um, I've seen in a lot of Nigerian fintech founders. Another example is Paga. I think Paga initially started operating, what, over a decade ago, was primarily known for their um, agent banking business and also their POS services, but recently released Doroki, which is now a key software as a service that they're selling to a lot of merchants, which is actually one of their biggest drivers of their revenues today. So I think that's also another um, example of a Nigerian fintech that has literally been operating for over a decade, but has now kind of like innovated and switched over to be more tech-driven. So I think those are two key characteristics. And of course, I'm not saying this about Nigerians to say that it's not happening anywhere on the continent, but just specifically answering the question about Nigeria and Nigerian fintech founders. But I'll hand it over to you, Michael, to also give some Yeah, insights. and I think, Michael, as you go, I think everyone has mentioned a lot of people, but I think back to my question, what's exciting about pre-series A fintech? Mm-hmm. So just to give uh, an overview of numbers, out of our 133 portfolio companies in Fund 1, which we fully deployed early this year, we are currently raising our second fund. By size, Fund 1 was $36.3 million. Uh, Fund 2, we are looking to 2x that. And one of the main ideas is just to have more reserve capital to be able to do multiple full-on rounds in well-doing portfolio companies to get them to that later stage level of their growth where uh, later stage VCs, PEs, and the other big boys and girls can pick on. And of that, we had 27 deals in Nigeria. 34% of our entire portfolio is fintech, and majority of that is concentrated in Nigeria. And I think just looking at it purely from an opportunity perspective, 
looking at numbers in terms of underbanked populations in Africa, I think we still have quite a high number, uh, ranging somewhere between half a million, 350 to half a million people that are still underbanked. And if you look at the percentage represented by Nigeria, it stands at about 30 to 36% of that. So looking at about 40 million Nigerians who are underbanked and underserved in the financial sector. So looking at startups that are innovating for this space and mainly solving pain points such as uh, lack of access to these services, issues with affordability, or basically poor user experience, there's a lot of potential for them to innovate. And what we're seeing now is, especially in our portfolio companies for founders we've backed from their pre-seed, seed, and some that are in the uh, pre-series A stage, a uh, few notables include players like AfriX uh, that is in the fintech space. What they've gotten right and where we see the opportunity is founders who've won have clearly mastered their unit economics. So, you know, they've understood their cash plan. Uh, they are doing more with way less even before the funding winter. And part of uh, what we do as Launch Africa Ventures, because we focus more on venture building, is actually working with our portfolio companies to ensure that they are very cognizant of things like cash plan and how to preserve that. Do less with more. Don't hire too fast, too much. And we run office hours for about 170 portfolio founders all in one group. And we speak to each one of them each once a month just to make sure that things are healthy business-wise aside the reporting they have to do for us or to us monthly or quarterly. And so the opportunity for these founders is one, reserving cash plan, preserving that, making sure they have extended runways. Two, founders who are very close to their customer needs and understand their customer pain points, uh, as opposed to founders who think they understand the pain points of the customer. And of course, three founders who have a clear path to profitability from day one. So going back on how we value businesses, we've had a lot of learnings, as you can imagine, from having one that three portfolio companies and making those investments. Now, as we are in our harvest period, we have a ton load of lessons that we are working to apply for a second fund. And lastly, you have founders who focus more on... Uh, the last point is escaping me. So unit economics, uh, path to profitability, uh, they have customer validation, which speaks to product market fit of their business uh, and the product they're bringing to the market. Yeah, and lastly, I think founders who have a strategic way of thinking for the business earlier on, and this speaks to the type of investors they choose to have on their cap tables as partners. So uh, what more aside the capital are they bringing to the partnership? And there's a last point, speaking to uh, the point about exits. One thing we do proactively is in unlocking corporate distribution channels for our founders is developing these relationships in a way where we are now seeing potential exits for the businesses and for the fund because ultimately we are looking for a 10x. We have a tenure as a fund and we're looking to recover that money before the fund's life cycle runs out. So working proactively with our founders to identify different corporate stakeholders in the markets they're operational in, the region, and ultimately across the continent in a way that serves uh, value both for the founders, the potential acquirers, and to us as a fund. I just want to add, I think these are all very good points, but I think if I'm to just add some additional color around why Nigeria has been quite a standout market in an African context, attracting relatively more capital, I think there's a couple of additional points to the good points already made. Uh, the first one is around the structural dynamics of the country. So when you look at things like internet penetration, smartphone penetration, 
4G penetration. Okay, the trends there have been on the rise for quite a number of years, and they are very supportive of increasing demand for digital services in Nigeria. Okay, we already had the points around the large population. I think that's undisputed. But at the same time, when you have such a large population that also has a very young, digitally savvy population. So if you look at Nigeria, 82% of the population is less than 40 years old. Okay, so this is a lot of people that will continue to demand digital services, okay, in an iPhone, you know, AI type of age. So that will continue. And many of this, so the, the birth rates are quite high. Population is growing 2-3% every year. So more people getting into the workforce every given year. Now, when I say workforce, let me also, um, should I say caveat to that point? You also have a country with a large population where unemployment rates are quite high. That also means that when you graduate and you can't find a job, entrepreneurship is probably your best bet after that. So naturally, uh, particularly in a market where in an industry where barriers to entry can be somewhat low, so that being tech, naturally, you also have a lot of Nigerians entering into the tech space trying to build out new businesses, Okay. So that was the third point. I mean, the final point is the role of infrastructure and regulations. Okay, infrastructure in Nigeria, from a payments viewpoint, payments infrastructure, entities like Interstate have been around for over 20 years. Okay, so driving the card payments infrastructure. You also have a number of other players in that space, like eTransact, etc. At the same time, in terms of real-time payments in Africa, Nigeria has had NIPs for 15 years, probably. Okay, and this is driving real-time instant payments in Nigeria. Okay, it's the leading, probably, it's probably the leading by, no, not probably, it is the leading instant payment platform in Africa by volumes. And if you look at it in a global context, I believe Nigeria is probably top 20. Okay, so I think all of these things, but also the regulations have also helped to, Nigeria has probably the most regulations for payments in Africa. Right. But at the same time, the central bank has over time clarified what the regulatory landscape should look like for the payment industry. So that all, and I think there's a bunch of lawyers in the room. I think I see one over there. So, um, yeah. So the regulatory landscape has become much clearer, helping to drive a number of the companies, you know, that colleagues on the panel have been able to look at from an investing perspective. Yeah. So I, th- I think the trend we are seeing in Nigeria is not, I wouldn't say they're out of this world. There's a reason why that's the case. Yeah. Great. And I think thank you all for sharing those sentiments. And I think it's just giving us a little bit more perspective of where to think about, about other markets. But then I want to turn to Michael again. So again, you've mentioned that the number of deals Launch Africa has done over time. And I think something that we're seeing is like, we all know which big four markets continue to raise money. And that's why I started from talking about Nigeria, but we know there are other three that like lead that pack. And I'm seeing a lot of investments, at least from your end. And I'll let JZL chime in again in what we call tier two market. So I'm seeing a lot of investments from you in countries like CIV. An interesting one you've done is Tanzania. And so my question is like, where did you see potential when you're investing in these tier two markets? And like, what's the future you're seeing of them as well? Thank you. Thank you, Timame. Um, so maybe just speaking a bit to the genesis of Launch Africa as a fund. So founded in 2020. And the main reason why the GPs, you know, Zach and Janaid founded the fund was to help solve the one valuation arbitrage that was or still is taking place in the early stage uh, venture funding space on the continent and also the significant funding gap 
for pre-seed seed businesses in Africa trying to raise money to get to that later stage of growth. So October 2020, they had their first close for the fund, and 18 months later, they had raised $36.3 million. Maximum check size is, what, 300000 And the idea is to be a Pan-African fund that predominantly, and we only invest in businesses that are operational in one of the 54, 55 African markets. Uh, of course, from a holding structure perspective, that's something else. But the primary teams and operations of the businesses have to be domiciled in an African market. And we look at three things when we are doing what we call a market scoping for new markets that we want to penetrate. And we look for, one, do we have ecosystem builders? So do we have hubs, accelerators, incubators, purely one from a standpoint of deal flow generation in these markets, which would mean we can also get further insights into the market conditions for whichever sectors these founders are innovating for. Two, we look at do we have corporate relationships in these markets, and this is purely from corporate distribution standpoint, so banks, telcos, insurance companies, and then three, we look for do we have other partners in the VC space that can either co-invest with us in these deals in these markets or later stage investors who can invest after us and make sure that these companies don't die out for lack of working capital. And the challenge we had with Fund One, despite having made 133 investments, is that we were limited in ticket size, so we could only do up to $300,000. But what we have that is good is provide our limited partners with the option to co-invest alongside the fund. So in addition to the $36.3 million we invested directly, we had a further $16.9 million co-invested by our LPs into companies where we'd maxed out our 300000 ticket size. And this is one of the reasons why for Fund2, uh, we're targeting 75 to $100 million raise, and the ticket sizes will average between 250000 up to a $1 million. And the idea is purely that these new markets that we have been uh, frontier in many cases, so talking about Cameroon, DRC, Tanzania, how do we make sure that our investments grow sustainably and these businesses actually get to even scale beyond the entry markets? And that's why we look for three uh, these three key points or relationships. And of course, we believe that it takes an ecosystem to raise a startup. So we really do need these partnerships. And hopefully we work together to get our portfolio companies to the later stage of growth where we get to liquidate our holdings and return the fund. Great. Fantastic. And so now I want to wrap up and like kind of just open it up to the rest of um, the room. But then I think just in general for the entire panel and starting from Yvonne, while we look at like current key trends in the ecosystem, um, how much do you feel like they will play out for the remainder of the year, um, which is three months, I know. So just the remainder, the next quarter as well. Honestly, I think... What I'm curious to see is, I'm actually more curious to see how things will play out. I think a lot of the things that we've seen in the past 12 months were in what we call a correction between valuations going down, unfortunately, a lot of startups closing shop, a lot of companies starting to focus a lot more on profitability and their unit economics. I think it's going to be interesting to kind of see how the rest of the year kind of plays out. So then we'll see how 2024, what we can anticipate in 2024. I can personally not working within a fintech or even like founding a fintech. I don't think I could give you insights in terms of this is what we're going to do and whatnot. So I think for me, it's more of a wait and see um, and also hoping for the best for all the players out there as well. 
Yeah, just uh, double clicking on uh, Yvonne's point. I think from our perspective as a fund, I think one thing we anticipate seeing is probably more companies, unfortunately, running out of working capital. I think we'll have more companies, uh, startups run out of working capital in the next six months than we've seen in the last six. Uh, and if you look at purely companies that would have raised, say, uh, half a million to 1.5 million in the mid of 2021 for a 12 to 18 month runway, they will be running out of cash by December this year. And so if they haven't been able to raise alternative financing for their working capital through debt, which is what we've been seeing over the last few months, they're likely going to unfortunately run out of business. But from a Launch Africa perspective, what we expect to see more of is in terms of a consolidation happening uh, in the market. We expect to see companies either joining forces to survive or running out of business. And that is one thing we are very keen on from a portfolio construction perspective, seeing how we can help our portfolio companies or some of them survive by joining forces, either through an acquisition play or through a pure partnership play. Yeah, and, and really just looking forward to keeping investments flowing into early stage founders who are building solid solutions for everyday African problems. Not supposed to say that they're going to die, you know. That's our secret. We don't say it all out. I think two things for me. One, consolidation, obviously, is, is the big one because people are running out of money. Uh, and also because I think in the euphoria of like Africa rising, we, a lot of us ignored a lot of how difficult it is to really build a business. So I think that's going to be a lot of consolidation in the space. I mean, we're seeing, we're going to see a lot of players thinking through how do we expand our market share by acquiring complementary businesses. So Rise Vest announced that they acquired Shaka, for example. Our portfolio company, Copo, got a, a money point announced that they were acquiring them. So you're going to see, I think, a lot more consolidation in the space, which I actually think is a good thing for the ecosystem, for there to be a, a bit more consolidation in the space. And I think so that's probably like more forward looking. But when I look more at what's coming in the pipeline of companies, I think what's going to be really interesting is to see increased investor focus on due diligence and, and especially on governance and fraud. And, and so a lot of things I'm telling a lot of my companies is that if you're, especially you're building a company from start, building a world class company from day one. So things, simple things like, you know, separating business and personal accounts from day one, making sure that your holding structure makes sense, that it sits somewhere that is protected, your operating company structure makes sense. And if you have found and all these words sound like gibberish to you, you should talk to a lawyer because like, more investors are going to care about these things. And I'm finding companies that are getting passed on because investors are like, this bank account doesn't make sense to me. I'm just not going to touch it. It might be a simple thing to fix, but just because of where the market is right now and investors being a lot more gun shy because of the downturn, you're going to find that a lot of founders should be building, in my opinion, world-class businesses from day one, even if it's just an idea in your head and you drew it on paper last night. Um, so uh, I think a lot of mention about consolidation, which just means more work for us. Yep, as uh, as an investment bank, so that's great. I think also there will be maybe not necessarily over the next three months, but definitely over the next uh, twelve to twenty four months, more reliance on local sources of funding, whether that's coming from local banks or local capital markets, right? And that and in terms of the capital markets, that's either equity capital markets or debt capital markets, but in terms of local currency funding. And this is also another area where, you know, as a bank, we play very actively in. So APSA, for example, we do have a deposits franchise in 10 African countries. 
We have a lending business in 11 African markets. So in Nigeria, for example, we do not have a deposits franchise, but we actually do lend in Nigeria in foreign currency. And Nigeria primarily is um, an investment banking business, but also capital markets as well, equity and debt. So essentially, yes, a lot of consolidation. I think that will continue, but also more reliance on local markets for local currency funding, whether that's debt or equity. Great. Thank you so much. And I hope those insights and those things are helpful for everybody. I'm going to open it up to the rest of the room just for questions. My name is Dami Salah. I'm a partner based in Lagos, Nigeria, focused on working with fintech companies um, in Nigeria, but also doing some work across Africa. And we've heard a lot from the panelists, very, very interesting conversations around how we we're looking at the next six months, we're looking at consolidations, it's looking at things might be tight, uh, funding is drying up for now, and people need to pay attention to some of the fundamentals. That's great. But where do we go from here, right, in the next two years, uh, one to two years, three years? Do you think that Africa has another a billion dollar company somewhere? Uh, do you think that there's some potential to have another company, sort of startup, great founding team, great solution, great fundamentals? Do we think that we have the capacity as a continent to push out two, three more billion dollar companies? Um, I ask because it's great to have businesses consolidate and grow and acquire. That's one way of achieving growth. But the other way, another way of achieving growth is just starting starting from ground zero and growing organically. And that's why we're all here today. So I really would like to hear what the panelists think about whether we think, uh, in spite of all the fundamentals we have, great regulations, great infrastructure, great funding and all of that, do we have the capacity to push out another two, three billion dollar companies? Thank you. I think the short answer is yes. I think the longer answer to your question is what kinds of businesses do we build? And I think that if we build companies that are Silicon Valley light, likely maybe a few. If we build companies that are focused on African problems with a global outlook, then definitely so. For a few different reasons, right? I think to uh, the Suji's point earlier, the youngest population um, in the world going to be the workforce of Africa is going to be the majority of the world. 60% of arable land in the world is in Africa. Um, same percent of fresh water is in Africa. There's a lot of like larger trends that should support this, but all of us who have lived here long enough know just because Africa is rising doesn't mean it actually rises, right? And so I think it's a conversation around the kinds of businesses we built. I do think though that for a lot of people like me who are investors, we're going to have to get very good at not pattern matching just because Flutterwave built a business. So you back the next Flutterwave-esque looking company. I think that's, that's where we start to see the disconnect because the real, the issues here are a lot, right? And I used to invest in the States and it's a very different market because the problems there are not as visceral as they are here. So I do think that there's pain points that should be solved to build a, a billion dollar company or more. I just think that you have to build a business that's uniquely African with a global outlook. You can't just kind of like copy and paste right now. I think all the copy and paste ones have been done for the most part. And so it's really going to be hard for founders who don't want to take that extra step to build an innovative Africa focused problem. But I definitely think so. If not, we won't have this conference and you will not be here. <laughs> just a few points. So when you talk about a, a billion dollar valued company in Africa, right? You also need to understand where is this company generating its revenues. So if this is a, com- if this is a company generating revenues from African markets and you're trying to benchmark the valuation in dollars, 
you need to be very cognizant of the foreign currency devaluation risks. Okay. So if you have a business, for example, from Nigeria, you know, I think uh, Timami mentioned quite a number that have raised significant funds at quite high valuations, you know, really good. But, but they are operating in a market where the currency, there's capital controls, you know, there was big devaluation when the new president came into office. So naturally, as an investor trying to figure out what the value of this company is, you need to factor in ongoing devaluations in your model. Okay, so the pathway to get into a sustainable billion dollar plus valued business, it's a patchy one. Yeah. So I actually wouldn't put too much pressure around getting to a billion dollars. I think the statistics gave there's what, maybe 600 companies valued at over, yeah, 600 companies with over half a billion dollars in revenues. If you even manage to get there, I think that's an achievement. Okay. The main thing is we need to understand the dynamics of our markets that currency risks are real risk because, you know, Foreign currency reserves are quite a constraint. Inflation is quite high. Interest rates are also quite high. Okay, so these are all natural risks we all need to keep in mind. So it's one thing to value a company at a billion dollars in private markets. It's a separate conversation that somebody is writing a check to buy that company for a billion dollars, or you're able to list that company at a billion dollars in capital markets. If that company is primarily operating in one country, you probably would struggle to get yourself listed at that sort of valuation because they're a single country, single country risk. I'll say um, your best best bet is probably to list in your local exchange, okay? Because local investors probably are less concerned about foreign currency because you know you're generating local currency revenues. But if you're looking to list on an international exchange, you probably need to think of building a Pan-African business that also still has significant growth and profitability dynamics that can help to support you know how international investors assess your investability uh, by listing on an international exchange. Yeah. To add on to that as well, um, looking at it from a very different perspective, um, I think over the next couple of years, something that we're going to have to start seeing from investors as well is a little flexibility in terms of the way that you actually finance businesses. I think equity investments, yes, great. Traditional debt investments, great, but also understand that I think a little more patient capital is actually needed to build out the infrastructure across different sectors, um, especially in the fintech sector across countries for companies to actually be able to grow and thrive. There's also another aspect of, um, apart from equity and traditional debt, what other financing model is available for you to actually provide capitals to companies to grow sustainably. So I think as much as we are also giving all the great advice to companies, I think on the investor side, we also have to look at how can we actually make the money that we're giving to companies a lot more flexible or maybe the terms that we're giving to them a lot more flexible and that does not mean that you kind of like err on the side of like lack of cautiousness like maybe lack like maybe being a, lot, a little more lax when it comes to regulation or terms but in terms of okay how can we make this term tied a little bit more to maybe things like revenues or maybe things like um, next milestones and there are other things that I'll most likely not mention. But I think there's a little bit more flexibility needed there um, in order to actually help companies thrive. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Join us at Africa Tech Summit Nairobi in February where African Tech connects. Please visit africatechsummit.com forward slash Nairobi for more details and use discount code DEFI, that's D-E-F-I, and receive a discount off delegate passes. To hear our latest episodes, please subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast app. You can also visit africatechsummit.com for our upcoming events and news.